So we're continuing in this journey that we have um, in the Gospel of Mark, and and today is a scripture that's going to make you wonder what Mark is about. And I'll say that up front because um, it has some some ideas in it that we'll have to explore later. That kind of makes you you rub your forehead and go, "What is that?" But we understand that Mark has an idea in mind of where Mark wants to go throughout Mark's gospel. So hear these words from Mark, <clears throat> Mark 3, starting with 19b, which is um, a real short piece through verse 27. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to, them, to him and spoke to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man then indeed the house can be plundered. May God give us understanding of these words this day, the word of God for the people of God. So I want to begin by saying that, that until about a year ago, which was the first time I used the book that we're using, the, the 40 Words for 40 Days book, um, that was the first time I ever preached this scripture. Um, and even after preaching it once, I still puzzle about how to approach it. It seems to be a lot of images that are kind of disjointed and not fitting together. When I preached this last year during Lent, uh, we were getting vaccines. I was kind of in my final stretch in the interim in Legrand. Um, at First Christian Church, they were ready to vote on their new pastor, and I knew that I would be finishing up within a couple of months. That's where I was, kind of in this place of, of hopeful, hopeful confidence, hopeful endurance. We'd come this far. Those vaccines were going to make a huge difference in how we were together as people. We could see the finish line ahead for both the church that I was serving and the pandemic. That's where, that's where kind of we were when you think about that. A year ago at this time, we were there. And so I had, you know, some, some particular ideas that I talked about there. When I picked this up again, I began to realize that... Um, I really wasn't sure where to go with this. I'll be really honest. I looked at that, that idea and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. 
I'm a very different person than I was a year ago. We have endured a very scary pandemic. Kind of this, this surge of Omicron was scary. I don't know how, how you can look at it any other way. Um, we're beginning to be a little optimistic about um, the, you know, the mask mandate being lifted and things opening up and, and schools going back to somewhat normal and, and all of those things that we hear about the pandemic now, I have kind of a hopeful note to them. So there, there's that. But then we have this kind of war that's going on that, that is something that we haven't ever, or I haven't ever really looked at clearly in my lifetime. I mean, my brother served in, in Vietnam. I know that. You know, we had Desert Storm and those things, but they weren't quite as huge as what we're hearing right now. And so we're, we have this time where there's some hope on one hand and some scariness on the other, and we're trying to figure out where we stand in all that. And I wish that I could say, this is the way out. But if you're expecting to hear that kind of sermon from me, I don't think you're going to get that today. Because I'm right there with you trying to figure out how to live in this. We're here and here at the same time. And I don't have these perfect answers on how this is all going to work. And so I go into this sermon knowing that there's these two things that we hold true. And I also go into the sermon knowing that we desperately need a word of hope. We need a word of peace. We need a word of love. And so then I'm looking at this scripture going, where is that in there? Where is that? But then I, you know, lived with this passage again for this last week. I read it two or three times a day. You know, I meditated on it. Penny and I walked in the woods. Penny is my dog. We walked in the woods and I, I said, God, you know, we need, we need this word of hope. And I have this scripture in front of me. And what I realized one day walking through the woods was that really the bottom line of this passage is all about hope and overcoming. And you're going to say, how is that, Sherry? Where do you get that? So I'm going to ask you to, to kind of bear with me as we talk about this and how that works. You know, this passage is a puzzle, that the pieces are kind of hard to put together. I don't know if you've ever tried to build a puzzle where all the pieces look the same. And, um, and you're trying to, it doesn't make sense. But then you get those two or three pieces that fit together, and then it's easy to put the rest together, or somewhat easy to put the rest together. So we're going to look at this passage as a puzzle. As I, as I began this, my preparation for today, I was kind of, though, at this point where I was saying, I don't know what to say. What am I going to say when I get up there? And that, 
That's really terrifying to be a pastor to not know what to say. But then the flip side of that is it's actually an exciting opportunity because I'm not coming into this passage with any preconceived stories in my head. I'm not coming to this passage saying, this is the point. Or am I? Ready or not, here we go. I'm going to learn right along with you. I'm going to, to look at this passage right along with you and see where we come out at the other end. Now, I do admit I have things written down. I have notes here because I don't want to leave out some things. But at the same time, I know that this, the Spirit can change and speak to each of our hearts individually and what we need to hear. So as we look kind of at, at the writer of Mark's timeline, um, Jesus began his ministry kind of with a bang. He healed a man with an unclean spirit, chapter 1. Um, healed people at, um, many people at Simon's house, we're told that. Um, he conducted a preaching tour throughout Galilee. He cleansed a leopard. He healed a paralytic and invited a tax collector to follow him. He bested the the Pharisees in a controversy about fasting, and bested them again in a controversy about plucking grain on the Sabbath, and he healed a man with a withered hand also on the Sabbath, and perhaps most notably, when the crowds pressed around him at the side of the sea, unclean spirits, Mark tells us, fell down before him and cried, you are the Son of God. And we're just in chapter 3. So after that, he went up to the mountain. He called those he wanted with him and appointed the 12 to be apostles. And then we come to this little part of 19, the second half of it, where he went home. And that's where we're starting today. And he went home. Um... Critics were lobbying accusations at Jesus. Um, in Mark's gospel, you might remember, as you look at that, it, anything, anything that opposed Jesus had to be the adversary, had to be Satan. And so in the gospel of Mark, you hear that, you know, it's Satan doing this or Satan doing that or the adversary doing this or adversary doing that. That's part of Mark's march through that up until where Mark ends with the, the death and cruci the crucifixion, death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Mark has this, this idea that he's moving pretty quickly through this timeline. So the adversary though, that is pointed to in the scripture is in some ways, different than like the Pharisees or the, you know, or, or any of those that have come before. The adversary right here is his family and friends. They are questioning. They have heard what Jesus has done, and they're thinking that there's something wrong with him. 
that he's doing these things and there's something very wrong. And then at the same time, there's this delegation of scribes that come um, from Jerusalem and they're questioning as well. And, and so there's this whole discourse on, you know, who are you and why are you doing this thing? And, and we should find you or we should stop you or we should make you not say these things. And so there's, there's this thing with the scribes, though. I don't think that they're coming directly to Jesus with their concerns. However, they're talking behind Jesus' back. They're telling him, oh, they're telling each other, oh, there's that guy. And he's doing this thing. And, and, um, and he's casting out demons and, and all of these things that, you know, we know him. We know Jesus. In fact, we have seen him in the synagogue, and we know, we know him. He's a carpenter. He can't be doing these things. He can't be doing these things. And so they accuse him of this allegiance with Beelzebul, the, the head of the demons. Um, they're because they can't reconcile what they're seeing in the person of Jesus and what Jesus is doing and what they think Jesus should be about, then they have, they have to find something to put the, the blame on or the, the, you know, to make a reason for what Jesus is doing. And so they say that he's in, in cahoots with Basabal, who was this king of demons and, um, And they themselves are leading kind of a, a division. They can see the good things that are happening. At the same time, they're afraid. So the family, the friends, the scribes are all speaking against Jesus. The family wants to protect him and, and bind him and, and make him be quiet. The scribes don't want to give him authority. And we might wonder, how did it come to this? Why would these people feel this way about Jesus when they can see what he's doing? They can see the good that's happening. You know, when, when someone has a demon in that culture, it was often some kind of a mental illness or something that kept them away from society. They were the marginalized. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't go to synagogue. They couldn't go with people. And so when Jesus was casting out whatever this was happening with them, they were then restored. And so there's this, this good happening and at the same time, it's scary because it's not what they knew. So it's happening not because of what Jesus is doing, but kind of because of the confusion that happens within them. You see, the scribes had lived all their life. They had a great tradition of following the law. They had this tradition where they did what they were supposed to be doing all the time. And they lived that way, and it worked for them. And then in comes this person that's 
challenging all that they've ever known. And they react to that. I don't know about you, if I think I know what I'm doing, and then I find out it's not exactly what I, what I thought it was, and I have to change what I'm doing because I'm headed in the wrong direction, it makes some feelings come up within me. For the scribes, this was scary stuff. This normal carpenter is now doing some really abnormal things. And then, you know, Jesus hears what they have to say, and, and then we have this piece where he begins to talk about some things that don't seem to make sense, to me at least, until I realize that He's using logic to kind of break through their outer shell. He gives, he exposes the, the fallacy at the bottom of their charge. When, he, when he's saying that you must be in cahoots with baseball, you have to be, or you couldn't be doing these things. What, how does Jesus answer? He says, is it possible for Satan to cast out Satan? If I'm the adversary, why would I do this thing? It doesn't make sense. So he's talking about that, and he's using parables to make them see that things aren't the way they're thinking. And he's not making it an argument. He's just saying it doesn't make sense to me. And if you really think about it, it won't make sense to you either. So then as we go into the passage to more, some more, we, you know, we have that kind of as our backdrop. But there are a couple more things I notice about this passage. Um, did you notice in the passage that Jesus called those scribes to him? You know, he called them to him. He wanted them to come to him and not to be talking behind his back. There's a book that I um, that I enjoy, and I go back periodically by Parker Palmer. I don't know if you're familiar with Parker Palmer as an author. It's called. Um, uh, It's about wholeness. I can't, I'm not pulling the, the title out right now. But he talks about how, oh, a hidden wholeness, that's it. I knew it was right there. He talks about how we live in a divided life. That, that what we often, in the hats that we wear each day, the things that we do each day, we have, we have this, this public self, and then we have what's inside of us. We have that, that, and the division. And kids, kids are just who kids are. Kids don't have that, that filter that we as adults have. They will say whatever comes to mind when it comes to mind. Kids, I believe, are the closest to God that anyone can be. 
because kids have that openness. And so Parker Palmer is saying that, that as we grow, we begin in that place of, of that closeness that where our outsides and our insides match up and we, we begin there. But as we live life and we take on different roles in our lives, then we try to, to please others. Maybe it's we try to be perfect. We try to do all of those things that, that will make us acceptable in society. And because we're trying so hard for this thing out here, we often have a mess in here. And so we have this divided life. And so when Jesus is talking in this passage about a house divided against itself cannot stand, I'm reminded of that piece in Parker Palmer where he's talking about if we can't reconcile the two parts of ourselves, we get into a lot of trouble. We make choices that aren't good. We take on more than we can possibly hold. We, we live in a life, a life that's constant stress. We do all of those things where we're trying to measure up and we can't because we're trying to be something we're not. So the house divided against itself cannot stand. The kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. When David and I were first moved back to Oregon from um, Indiana, we lived um, in this little bitty duplex for a while. And we, we were given the opportunity to move into a farmhouse on three acres in Aloha. Yes, there was one there. Um, and we loved that place. We loved the three acres. The, the boys could run um, and play, and um, we could have church people over, and we'd have a bonfire. I mean, it was just a beautiful thing. And we really wanted to buy that house. We really wanted We tried everything. But what we discovered was that the foundation of that house had a huge crack. And what we, what we came to realize is that the cost of fixing that house was more than we could do. If we could come up with the, the mortgage for the land, which was about $300,000, there's no way we could afford to, buy, to build a new house on it. And, um, and so I remember being incredibly heartbroken that we couldn't have this place. And so later... Probably a year or two later, we rented that, that property. And a year or two later, we moved to the house that we're currently in, in Hillsborough. Um, another farmhouse. It's in a subdivision. There isn't three acres of land to run around. But it turned out to be a perfect place for us to raise our children. I think when we moved into there, um, Anthony was in seventh grade, Josh sixth. Uh, Nathan was probably in second or third grade and Sarah wasn't in school yet. And we were, they were able to grow up in the schools there. And that's the house that we still live in. And I wonder if we would have known the people that we know now, if we had gotten that other property, if we would have overextended ourselves, if we'd gotten that other property. We have this place because we realized 
that that broken house was not for us. Sometimes that brokenness is something that we need to, to walk away from. And sometimes brokenness is something that can be healed. It's, it's all, all something we need to think about. In a divided house, in a divided life, in a divided kingdom, we talk more about differences and less about the things that we claim in common. We pick on little things instead of working for the common good. In church, we're often more worried about changing from the way that we've always been. You know those words, we've never done it like that. We always do it like this. We think about all that we've lost instead of embracing all that we have. And it holds us back from being the person that we're called to be, the church that we're called to be, the kingdom that we're called to be. Our souls long to be whole. And we're given the opportunity to, to gain in strength. And, yeah, the house divided against itself. There are, I'm wondering if within a few years that house that we lived at might have looked like that. It was fun. Justin, will you go to the next? In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it talks about a cord of three strands not being quickly torn apart. If you have one strand, say, Tiffany of yarn, just one, how strong is it? So-so. If we had a tug-of-war tug with that strand, we'd probably end up breaking it. That first strand is us standing alone. The second strand would be the strand that comes along in community. When we stand together, two strands are pretty strong. And the third strand is God. Jesus and the Spirit all working together to make us strong. If we are together in all that we do, then we will not fall. We will not. As a church, as a family, as, a, as an individual, we just cannot stand on our own. We cannot. That's something really important to remember as we're looking at the change that's in front of us. We have lived in kind of this, this divided kingdom, if you'll allow me to call it that. We've lived in this divided kingdom where we're divided politically, we're divided whether or not we think the pandemic is real, we're divided in how we 
do church. We're divided in who we are. We're divided in so many things that we come from that time looking toward the future and wondering where we go from here. And I'm thinking that this image, the image of self and community and God wound together could be that image that can carry us forward. We will not do things perfectly. We will not. I will not do things perfectly. You will not do things perfectly. Our leadership team will not do things perfectly. We won't. However, we can do things strongly. We can do things strongly and with hope. Change is scary. We're going to get ready to, to pull our pastoral selection committee together. We're going to be looking at the idea of who will be our next pastor. And I'll remind you, I'm not in a hurry. I just know that it's time to begin talking about that because I'm not meant to be here permanently. I'm not meant to be here forever and ever. I'm meant to kind of midwife you to help you be ready for what's next, to point to the hope that is in front of us. I'm here to love you, to hear you, to encourage you, but I'm not here to lead you beyond that. So as we begin to look at who our next pastor is, as we begin to look as these apartments open real soon, and we figure out how to be neighbors with that, as we look at what church will look like on this side, I think that we need to keep in mind that image of a cord together. I'm confident that we can overcome the obstacles that are ahead of us because I know that we've overcome so many obstacles already. We are here in this room post-pandemic or endemic or whatever you want to call this period that is right now. We will overcome any obstacles put in front of us. We will learn to work together in this unfamiliar world that is right now because we are people that walk in the Spirit. We are people that pray together. And we are resilient in our love and our care for our community. One of the greatest privileges I have is to sit here in this place, be able to look in the back and see the pantry and see that sometimes it's a little more lean like it is right now and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the next time I look at it, there will be items on there ready to get out. I know that because I know you. And I know me. And I'm already thinking I'm going to the grocery store this week. And I'm already thinking what I can bring. 
because we are in this together and we are living life together and we are ready to, to step into the future with hope. Because if we are the strong one that they're talking about in this passage, I know that kind of puzzled me what that would be all about. But if we are the strong one, and it says that you have to bind the strong one before you can plunder, I'm thinking that things like a break-in in our congregation that happened in the last few weeks, and things like the, the apple or pear or whatever went through the window up there, that that doesn't have the power to change that we're strong, and it doesn't have the power to change that we love, and it doesn't have the power to change that we care for our community, and that we are love, and we give love, and we are loved. May God grant us a new vision this day of hope, just like the Seeing the signs of spring, I see signs of hope. And I am grateful. Amen.